What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. Hope you guys are having an amazing day. Firstly, before we get into it, for those who are subscribed, if you're not subscribed, subscribe. But for those who are, make sure to hit the bell as well to get all the notifications. Because if you don't, you probably won't see the videos. I had a lot of people telling me that they weren't get that they weren't able to see my videos on their feed. And it's because they didn't hit the bell. So for those who are subscribed, make sure to hit the bell. Last night's card was amazing. If I'm going to be honest, it's one of the best fight night cards I've ever seen. The main event was kind of lackluster. The main event was kind of lackluster. I never would have thought that Tiago Santos would become a more careful fighter because he made a whole career, over 20 fights, about being this wild exploder in the cage. But now as he's fighting high-level competition, which is actually something he didn't really do too much in the middleweight division, besides when he fought Gegard Mousasi, he's become a lot more aware of what he wants to do. And I think it's throwing some of his opponents off because a patient Tiago Santos can be pretty hard to deal with. His explosions can come out in different moments that you expect. And as for Magomed Ankalaev, knowing that he's a phenomenal counterpuncher, it seemed like Santos was even more willing to not engage too much. But Santos was able to get the knockdown in the fight, landing that overhand off the exchange. And Ankalaev had a good win, but ultimately didn't have a good showing of what people expected from him. He didn't really exceed expectations. But it comes down to who should get the next title shot now. He beat Tiago Santos, but at the same time, Alexander Rakic also beat Tiago Santos in his last fight. Rakic was supposed to fight Jan Blachowicz, but Blachowicz pulled out due to an injury. So do you just have them two fight each other for the number one contender spot? That would actually be a great fight. I would love to see it, no matter the reason. And the winner of that should get a title shot. And we have to talk about Alex Pereira. So there's two camps right now. Some people believe it was not a good win for him. It wasn't a good performance. He should have knocked Bruno Silva out and not make it look as competitive as it was. But then there's another camp saying that it was actually a good win for Alex Pereira because Bruno Silva is a good opponent. Better than people expect. I believe that is the truth. Yes, we all want to see Alex Pereira, a promising up-and-comer, go and knock everybody out to his pursuit against Adesanya. Everybody wants to see that, but that's not the reality with everybody because Bruno Silva is way better than a lot of people think. Just on surface level, the guy was 17-1 in his last 18 fights prior to fighting Pereira. The only time he lost was by a submission. In those 17 wins, 15 of them were knockouts. He knocked out Jordan Wright, Andrew Sanchez, and even Alexander Shalmanko. Eventually, he was able to win the M1 Middleweight Championship. In the future, Alex Pereira's win over Bruno Silva is going to look a lot better. And remember, it's Pereira's second fight in the UFC. Adesanya's second fight in the UFC was against Marvin Torrey, and he almost lost the fight. It was way more competitive than this one. People were saying it back then as well. Adesanya, not a good performance for a man. He almost lost to Marvin Vittori. Pereira's fight here wasn't that competitive, but people were saying, oh, he didn't knock him out. Therefore, it's not a good win for him. But Vittori was eventually able to become a top three fighter in the middleweight division. Bruno Silva is going to rise in the rankings as well. It's a big reason as to why people thought that Adesanya didn't have enough to fight Brad Tavares afterward. This was a good win for Alex Pereira, not only for the level of competition he just beat. Bruno Silva is a big jump compared to who he fought before. But getting 15 minutes in the cage afterward was something that was great to see. And I'm glad it showed some people a little bit different of his style in the fight. Because he's not just a guy looking for knockouts. He's not just a guy who's looking for the big shots and stuff like that. He can be pretty hard to deal with the way he pokes at opponents. Jabs, front kicks, leg kicks. Poking up with right straights and close, he just taps you with uppercuts. He's waiting for you to expose yourself, swing big at him so he can counter you with a left hook. Eventually, he was able to find the left hook fading away and rocking Bruno Silva. It was like the impact itself didn't look too much because there was a second where he got hit and didn't give much of a reaction, but there was like an after effect. He started to lose his balance, like his equilibrium got shot. 
Pereira has the death touch in that left hook. He's extremely technical, and even defensively, some people think he was getting hit clean. He really wasn't getting hit clean with most of the shots. He was rolling with most of them, and oftentimes was able to step off in the right angle to counter Silva with the body knees. Alex Pereira is going to be a problem for most of these guys, man. It's just a takedown defense. We got to see more from him because getting taken down by Bruno Silva is not a good thing to see. He was able to get up very quickly every single time. And even later in the fight, as Silva started to get a little tired, he was defending all the takedowns, sprawling on them and all that stuff. But the actions weren't too quick. As of right now, I don't think he does too well against Vittori, Whitaker, and Brunson. Those are the three guys he has to watch out for. Most everybody else, he has a big chance in beating. And I'm pretty sure there's a question later about this. So I'm going to address his fight with Adesanya even more and did you guys watch one championship that card was insane man I never was really able to get to it but this one I watched Tan Lee with a fantastic performance over Gary Tonin I mean dealing with Gary Tonin's BJJ like that was so impressive I never would have thought that someone like Tan Lee would be able to do something like that because I've been watching Tan Lee for a while I remember him back in tough he had always phenomenal striking but his grappling was weak in comparison. Nobody wanted to strike with the guy, but he was easily taken down and handled on the ground. These days, he's putting it all together. He's trained with Ryan Hall. He's a great guy to have as a champion in any organization. He's so fun to watch. I highly recommend everybody just watch some highlights from this guy. You're going to fall in love with his style, and he has the look of a fighter who can gain a lot of followers as well. Tough loss for Gary Tonin, man. I want to see this guy succeed. I mean, he is pretty young for this sport. He hasn't been doing it that long. That was a sixth professional fight. He fought a champion. Hopefully, this doesn't discourage him too bad because when, you know, BJJ guys are using their main technique against someone and it's not working and they get knocked out for it, that could be super discouraging. I mean, I wonder how Ryan Hall is going to take his knockout loss and not with Gary Tony. I mean, BJJ guys in MMA right now aren't doing the greatest. It's really Charles Oliveira that's holding them all up. He's like carrying BJ on his back. When you have guys like Crone Gracie losing, Gary Tonin losing, Ryan Hall losing, Jacques Souza losing. I mean, Andre Muniz is there. Damian Mize over the hill. Brian Ortega's losing. It's really Charles Oliveira holding it strong for BJJ right now. And is it coincidentally, he's the most successful guy so far? Yeah, he's also the most well-rounded. You can't be a specialist in the sport anymore. It's way too difficult to get by, especially, you know, becoming a contender or a champion, doing one thing only. I know Damian Maia back in the day said that he wants to become a champion just using BJJ. Maybe 15 years ago, that was a possibility. Or even 10 years ago, that was a possibility. Today, you can't really do that. Everybody's getting good at everything. Or at least they're attempting to learn everything. If you're a Muay Thai fighter and you learn the basics of wrestling defense and BJJ defense and stuff like that, you're going to have a lot more success at this, right? You don't necessarily have to be an expert in every field. I think one day it will get to that. One day, we're going to have every fighter be like an advanced boxer with elite BJJ and elite wrestling and all this put together. There's going to come a day where everybody's going to be like that and the requirements to be a successful MMA fighter. The bar for that is going to be so high in the future. You're going to have to have like a long amateur career before you go professional. These days, you don't even have to do amateur that much. Couple fights and you can go right into pro. That's happened to so many fighters and still is happening today. And those guys are having success. In the near future, that is not going to be a reality. It might lean towards the other striking sports that have a professional and amateur scene, you know, like Muay Thai and boxing and kickboxing and such, where they've been around for so long, the skills have advanced so far, where you're going to have to have a long amateur career before you go professional. MMA right now is still kind of young, so they don't really have that yet. But it's slowly turning, and you can see it with this fight. That's why I loved watching this one, because you were able to see the success for a specialist in this sport. It's over. It's over right in front of our eyes. It was working like 10 years ago, and now it's done. That's how fast this sport is evolving right now. 
And the other fight was John Lineker knocking out Bibiano Fernandez. That was a wild one. I did not expect Bibiano to knock John Lineker down. He actually dropped Lineker with a left hook. Something we never really see happen to Lineker before. I mean, Lineker is known not only for his power, of course, you know, his hands of stone, but for also a granite And You see the size of his head? Bantamweights weren't able to hurt this guy that much. But this one, he went up to featherweight. He went up another weight class and fought a guy much bigger than he is. I mean, he was a flyweight at one point. Having a lot of success, went up to bantamweight, and now he's a featherweight. And so far, he's undefeated at one championship. He just became the champion. Bibiano Fernandez is a good opponent. A lot of people don't know about him too much, but he trains with uh, Demetrius Johnson, I believe, unless he switched gems. Excellent fighter, well-rounded, extremely good on the ground, though. But John Lineker is something else. A lot of people thought that Alexander Volkanovsky's short for a featherweight division. John Lineker is 5'3". Now, we do have to make one disclaimer about the weight classes here. Because, remember, one championship has a different kind of structure for their weight classes. So, they're not going to allow the fighters to cut too much weight. That is why John Lineker and Bibiana Fernandez are both at 145. In one, it's called bantamweight. 145 is bantamweight over there. But that is why John Lineker is fighting at 145. Because, technically, if he was in the UFC... If all those guys were in the UFC, they would all be at 135. But in one championship, they're not allowing that. So he has to fight at 145. It just tells you how big he is. The thing that's alarming about that is he was a flyweight. And he's cutting down to 145. That's insane. And if you really look at the guys that you know John Lineker lost to recently, his last loss was Corey Sandigan. That was a split decision loss. That was very close. He hurt Sandigan, I believe, in the third round. Going to the same kind of combinations and punches he even threw against Bibiano. Before that, it was TJ Dillashaw. TJ Dillashaw kind of took it to him. I mean, dominated the fight. And before that was all the way back to 2014 in the flyweight division when he fought Ali Bagutinov. So John Lineker is legit. I mean, he is a high-level fighter even still today. And people think he's old for the amount of fights that he has. I mean, he has almost 50 professional fights. He's at 44 right now. But he's only 31 years old and hitting his prime. I would have loved to see him still stay in that bantamweight division in the UFC. If John Lineker was there right now, I mean, there would be so many fantastic fights. Imagine putting him with Jose Aldo. Imagine putting him with, you know, Pedro Munoz, Cody Garbrandt. I mean, people forgot that he beat Marlon Vera already. He also beat Rob Font. He'd definitely be able to hang with the top of that weight class. And the combination he hit Bibiano with is a combination I love always seeing from the guy. I mean, he's been throwing it for like eight years in a row, and nobody's able to get away from it. Just a winging right hook to the body, left hook to the jaw, and he really changes levels for the body punch, which lowers the opponent's aim. That's what happened to Bibiano, because Bibiano's always looking for the check left hook, the one he actually hit John Lineker with and dropped him. So Lineker, by ducking low, changing levels, goes to the body with the right, he's causing the focus of Bibiano to lower, not only for his check left hook, but also his right guard, right? When he's throwing the check left hook, he wants to pick up his right hand to defend himself. Both of those lower, which means John Lineker is able to rise up above the left hook, which happened while he's throwing his own follow-up left hook. And with that, Bibiano's right hand is lowered which causes the left hook to hit right over it on the jaw and knocks him out. This combination from John Lineker that he hits everybody with reminds me of like Dan Henderson, right? I mean, remember when Dan Henderson used to always throw the lead leg kick into a right overhand combo? It was like the most simple combination you could throw, yet it always worked. It hit almost everybody. And for so many years, guys were not able to get away from it. They were able to figure it out. It means pretty easy to figure it out. But when they're standing in front of him, they just get hit. I mean, Michael Bisping fought this guy for how many rounds? Over five rounds. And he got dropped three times by that combo. It's the same thing with John Lineker's right body hook, left hook to the chin. That was just a great card, man. I really want to watch more of one championship. They have some high-level guys over there.
And I want to talk about this. This was in the news a little bit. Stipe Miocic versus Taito Ivasa. I would love to see it. I want to see Stipe fight again. I want to see Tai fight again. And them together would be interesting because Tai has like this athleticism to him, this speed that heavyweights don't normally have with one-shot knockout power. Even though he's not the most technical guy in the world, but he has great leg kicks. He can elbow you in close range. He can wing punches from a distance. He's dangerous at all ranges. Combined with that athleticism that, you know, in heavyweight division, you can kind of get by just off that. He can hurt anybody, man. He could put Stipe in a bit of trouble, but I don't see him being Stipe. I mean, especially because of the wrestling. Stipe has been winning a lot of these fights due to his boxing, but people seem to forget how good of a wrestler he is. I don't think Ty is going to be ready for that. Ty is also not a big guy. He's heavy, but he's not big. So the double leg takedown can definitely work against him, especially attacking that forward pressure that Ty is aggressive with, right? Ty is a very heavy front foot fighter always moving forward and charges into opponents. That's perfect for Stipe to counter with a double leg takedown. And if Tai's not doing that, the single leg is going to cause him a lot of problems. Even if Stipe is not getting them, just that threat is going to cause Tai to be a little bit confused in the fight. And the boxing combinations for Stipe are going to be able to land a lot easier. And here's something that a lot of people don't throw against Tai Tuivasa or body punches. Tai doesn't have the best cardio, right? Just going to the body for Stipe Miocic, I mean, that left hook that he caught Daniel Cormier with for two fights straight, that's going to be a huge weapon against someone like Tai Tuivasa. So I really favor Stipe in that kind of fight. Even though Tai is on a bit of a momentum and he's starting to get a little bit of a name out there, the skills are so far apart between these two. But ultimately, as fun as this fight would be, I don't see it happening. I don't see why Stipe would take it. Stevie's been adamant that he would only fight John Jones or for the belt. If he could fight Ty for the belt, he would do that. But I doubt that's going to happen. They might throw another interim as a negotiation tactic against Francis Ngannou. But that would be two in a row. They just did that with Derek Lewis and Cyril Gunn, right? They're going to do it again with Stipe and Ty. It would be kind of strange. But it would be a way to get Stipe to fight Ty Tuivasa. Unless Stipe doesn't want an interim belt. Unless he just wants to undisputed. Remember, because Stipe sticks to what he wants. He will not take something that he knows is not worthy. And there's no sources as to Stipe fighting Ty. It's really Ty saying that he wants to fight Stipe. And that's really it. What I can see happening here is... Ngannou is, of course, going to wait it out, go into boxing or something, try to fight Tyson Fury, who he himself is going to retire from boxing. But he said he's kind of open to these special fights, so he might still fight Francis. And then we're going to have Stipe against anybody for the championship, and it's most likely going to be John Jones. We might have Cyril Gan fight Taito Ivasa. That might be a thing because Tide's in the top three and so is Cyril Gan. That's probably the worst matchup for Taito Ivasa in the whole top 15, but that seems like the most likely thing to happen because Cyril Gan doesn't want to go down in the rankings to fight somebody. He already beat a lot of these guys. Taito Ivasa versus Cyril Gan seems to be the most likely scenario. And then Stipe versus John Jones for the heavyweight title. But man, a lot of these heavyweights do not fight that often. And in other news, Robert Whitaker versus Marvin Vittori is happening. And it's going to be happening on UFC 275. That is the card that's going to be headlined by Glover Teixeira versus Yuri Prohaska. That's going to be insane. And the Valentina Shevchenko versus Tyler Santos. That's actually also a good fight. There's not a lot of good competition for Shevchenko, but Tyler Santos, she's an interesting challenger. Because she's finally a young fighter, doing very well in her career. She's 19-1. and one. Most of them finishes. She's mostly a striker, but she's shown a bit of her grappling in her last fight. Do I see her being Valentina? Absolutely not. But Whitaker and Vittori is going to happen on this card as well. I'm going to just say it, man. Whitaker's too fast. That's all it's going to come down to. Vittori's going to be missing everything. And even if he gets his hands on Whitaker, tries to take him down, I don't see it working. If Romero couldn't do it, if Jacques Ray couldn't do it, if Derek Brunson couldn't do it, I do not see Marvin Vittori doing it. And Vittori's going to strike with this guy? This might be a very dominant performance for Robert Whitaker. And great to hear from Whitaker himself. He said after that Israel fight, he's got all of his confidence back. He might have been doubting himself up until he got that rematch. 
right? So that's actually crazy to hear. When you really think about that, he fought Jared Kennanier and Kelvin Gastelum, not 100% mentally. Now he says he is. After reassuring how good he is against Israel, he knows for a fact now that he can beat him and apparently should have won the fight. And now he's going against Marvin Vittori with 100% clearance in his mental state as well as being the best he's ever been physically and technically. This is going to be an important fight because it's going to show to everybody how far apart Whitaker and Israel is from the rest of the division because we saw what Vittori and Adesanya looked like. If we see that Whitaker does a similar thing or just absolutely destroys Vittori, what do you even do with this division? You got to wait for Andre Mooney's to do something. That's what it's going to come down to. What can Andre Mooney's do? If Whitaker goes out there and destroys Vittori, the middleweight division is going to struggle outside those two top guys. And in that case, Whitaker might get another title shot sooner than we think. I said before this that, you know, Whitaker probably won't get that title shot ever again if he loses this one. But I did not expect him to actually arguably win the fight. I did not expect that to happen. So Whitaker exceeded my expectations about that fight. And that puts him in a good spot in this division. Andre Mooney's is lower in the rankings. I know Jarek Henry is going to be fighting Adesanya, but there's not a lot of other guys there. If you look at the rankings right now, you know, Adesanya is the champ. Whitaker is number one. Kenner is number two, Vittori is number three, Brunson, Strickland, and Costa are all number four. Hermanson's number seven. I don't know how that makes any sense. How is Hermanson number seven when there's no five or six? Okay, Hermanson's number seven, I guess. Darren Till's number eight, Uriah Hall's number nine, Kelvin Gaslam number 10. Then you got guys like Imavov and Mooney's at number 11 and 13. So the two guys in the top 10 that are somewhat interesting to have them fight the champion. That's Jared Kennanier and Sean Strickland, mainly because they never fought him before. Kennanier is powerful. He can make anything happen. He has good leg kicks. He has extremely good precision with his hands. He's also pretty long with his punches. Not the most technical guy in the world, but then you have Sean Strickland, who is a good defensive fighter. If he fights Adesanya, that might be one of the most boring fights of all time. Strickland's super defensive, but Adesanya is a counterfighter. Doesn't like the lead, so we might see another situation where Adesanya and his opponent are staring at each other. Imavov, Muniz, and Pereira. We have to see what these three guys can do. Those are the real guys that we got to wait for them to rise in the rankings so we can see what they can do against the top of this division because Whitaker and Adesanya are holding this weight class with chains. And I got to say it, man. I've been talking about guys I've been impressed with. The fighter I've been most impressed with in the last few weeks has been Bryce Mitchell. I talked about it, but man, when I look back at that fight, Bryce Mitchell has impressed me more than most fighters in like the last year or so. I'm going to have to admit it, man. I didn't give him too much credit. I knew he was good, especially on the ground. I didn't give his striking too much credit and his wrestling. Man, did he show up against Barboza at a different level. He showed good power in his hands. He showed good wrestling as well. Bryce Mitchell is a real threat in that featherweight division. That guy has caught my attention like very few fighters in recent years. And with that, I'm going to get right to the questions. And I'm going to start with Patreon. First question by the Nanonites. Ty versus the top five of the heavyweight division. Okay, so number five, Derek Lewis. Of course, he already beat him. Curtis Blades. I'm going to have to go with Curtis Blades. Stipe Miocic, I'm going to go with Stipe Surreal Ghanu. Definitely Surreal Ghanu. And then Francis Ngannou, for sure Francis Ngannou. Then Hamza versus Izzy. How would it go down? Hamza would take him down. If Whitaker can do it, I'm pretty sure Hamza is going to be able to do it as well. Hamza's a big guy. He's long. His wrestling is just on another level, I believe, than Whitaker's offensively, that is. But here's the thing. Izzy is good against the cage at defending takedowns. He's like one of the last surviving guys of doing that. Most guys do not want to get on the cage 
to defend takedowns anymore. Is Izzy's takedown defense against the cage good enough to stop Hamzat? I don't believe it is. And here's another problem here. Hamza doesn't need to get Izzy all the way to the ground because when Izzy gets tripped out unbalanced in some way, he always gives up his back and tries to run away from the opponent. Hamza's gonna love that. You give his back to him, he's gonna either jump on it, try to choke you out, or he's gonna drag you back to the mat, or even pick you up and slam you back. So wrestling-wise, I do see Hamza taking over that fight. But when it comes to the striking, I gotta see more head movement from Hamza Shemaev. I know he's good at changing levels at any moment. He showed against Li Jingliang. It was perfect timing where he went from a high feint into a low shot. One of the fastest shots we've seen in the welterweight division. So he could definitely do something like that. And that could really put Izzy on the defense very quickly in the fight. But I just wonder if Izzy can catch him with a knee, the same knee he caught Derek Brunson with. If Hamza doesn't do that, he's trying to box with Izzy a little bit or push him back using his boxing, does he have the head movement to get away from Izzy's counter punches? I just don't know. But when you look at on paper, just look at the styles and the way these two guys fight, it puts Hamza in the advantage. Because he's good against fighters moving backwards. That's what he wants. Guys like Hamza and Habib and Islam, you gotta actually push them back to start to pick out at their openings. When you're moving away from them, they're going to shoot on the cage. And they have a lot of feints to set up that takedown. Against the fence, Izzy is good there, but I don't think he's going to handle Hamza Shemaev. Izzy is so long, so when he's stretching out against the fence like that, it can cause a lot of issues for fighters to trip him out, get behind his legs, get behind the hips, and all that stuff. All while he's fighting off your grip and breaking your posture. The thing with Hamza is, he doesn't need to get Izzy directly to the mat from that position. He just needs to get him off balance. That's it. And even when it comes in the striking... Izzy is mostly a counterpuncher these days, especially since he's become a champion, right? He's a different fighter as a champion than he was rising in the rankings. And that happens to most dominant champions, except Kamaru Usman, who actually was reversed. He was not as exciting as a contender, but now he's really exciting as a champion. With Adesanya look at a counter Hamza Shemaev coming in, he can really fall victim to a lot of those high feints into low singles or just high feints into double legs because I can't imagine these two guys are that different in weight. So the double leg takedown, I believe, from Hamza is definitely going to be a big weapon against Izzy. I believe Izzy walks around 200, like 205 maybe, and Hamza probably somewhere around there as well. 195 to 200. The more you think about the fight, the more you see Hamza winning it. We just got to see how he does against Gilbert Burns and some of the other top contenders in the UFC. And then your next question, return fight for Connor and John Jones. Man, I don't want to answer that question. I know a lot of people don't want to see Connor fight for the belt, but that's what the plan looks like. As undeserving as it is, I want to see Connor versus Tony. If they could take Tony out of that Chandler fight and then put in Connor, that's the fight I would like to see. Or, you know, Connor versus Nate. Or Connor versus Jorge. Any of those fights would be perfect for Connor. As for John Jones, Stipe. Let's do the heavyweight fight. Put John Jones up against Stipe because I don't want to see him fight Glover again. If Yuri beats Glover, now it could be somewhat interesting with John Jones. I don't think John Jones cares too much about it. I think he would rather fight Stipe Miocic for the heavyweight title because it's there for the open. If Francis is leaving, the heavyweight title is going to be vacant. And they're going to Jesse Griffin. Chilson recently went over his Mount Rushmore for middleweight. Who would be your Mount Rushmore for each weight class? Okay, this is fun. I'll just do the UFC just to make it more simple. Heavyweight division. Stipe Miocic, Cain Velasquez, Free Cain, Mark Coleman, and Brock Lesnar. The light heavyweight division is going to be Chuck Liddell, Randy Couture, Tito Ortiz, and I guess John Jones. I mean, it'd be pretty weird to see John Jones' face on a Mount Rushmore, but I guess you would have to. For the middleweight division, there's not a lot of guys to pick from. Anderson Silva's definitely up there. I mean, he's such a legend that he could take up all four heads. But Anderson, Adesanya, Whitaker, and Rich Franklin. The welterweight division is GSP, Matt Hughes, Kamar Usman, and Robbie Lawler. The lightweight division, Habib, BJ Penn, Rafael Dos Anjos, 
and Tony Ferguson. The featherweight division is definitely Jose Aldo, Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovsky, and I guess Conor McGregor. The bantamweight division, Dominic Cruz, Uriah Faber, TJ Dillashaw, and Henan Barrow. The flyweight division, Demetrius Johnson, Joseph Benavidez, Davidson Figueredo, and Henry Cejudo. Women's bantamweight division is Ronda Rousey, Amanda Nunes, Roxanne Modafferi, and Misha Tate. The women's flyweight division, I mean, do we really have to pick one? Valentina Shevchenko. Oh yeah, put her head on all of them. And the women's strawweight division is, of course, Ioanni on Jacek, Rose Namajunas. I want to say Jessica Aguilar, just for what she did throughout all MMA, but if it's just the UFC, I guess Zhongwei Lee. I'm just going to leave in Jessica Aguilar. And then we're going to dangerously dubious Double Davison. Question, I'm not a kickboxing expert, state qualifier in wrestling here. But why do people think Alex Pereira will outstrike Israel Adesanya? If you look at the two times they fought each other, his masterful counter style faced a lot of struggles with the elusiveness of Adesanya. And in kickboxing, his style directly benefited from the massive gloves and still almost got finished, had the ref not saved him in the second. I get that he's tall and long and a world-class striker, so people assume it's going to be a good matchup, but ultimately, Alex is too rigid, in my opinion, to deal with the head movement and the footwork of Izzy. Interesting question. I could definitely see where you're going at. So you're saying Pereira's a counterfighter, I guess, but it's not like your conventional, normal counter style that he has. He picks at you a lot, right? He goes to the body, kicks your legs, jabs you in the face, pesters you to get you to expose yourself a little bit. And then when you try to counter his small attacks, that's when he lands on you with his big shots. Like for an example, Adesanya is a little bit different. Adesanya does a similar kind of thing, but he backsteps away. Alex Pereira is always on the front foot until he has to counter you. Adesanya has taken more of that conventional counter style that you're used to seeing. Guys backing away, waiting for the big shot to come through so he can counter you. But here's the thing. Even if Alex Pereira's skills fail him against Izzy, his power is undeniable. He can always make it work. He was able to knock Adesanya out with one shot in kickboxing with big gloves. Imagine what you could do with four ounces. This is a dangerous, dangerous fighter. Beyond imaginable coming from the world of kickboxing. So yes, I do agree with you that Adesanya's style translated very well because he fought similarly. He didn't pick his hands up as much. He wasn't as flat-footed as he was in kickboxing. He's a lot more of a mover these days, very elusive. But the shots that he throws, the way he reacts to punches and kicks and stuff, it's all very similar to what he did in kickboxing. As for Alex Pereira, it's still to be seen. He hasn't done too much yet. He hasn't fought too much in MMA. But judging from for what he did in kickboxing yes Pereira does use the high guard but not all the time especially later in his kickboxing career he was starting to roll with punches a lot more putting his hands down and trying to just slip away from punches he adapted that into his style especially after he fought Adesanya that aspect is definitely going to help him going into a fight with Adesanya in MMA but you also have to know that the precision of the punches he was able to land in kickboxing are going to be a lot easier for him to land in MMA now because the opponents in kickboxing were able to defend his punches a lot easier so the knockout came out so much later. Here in MMA, getting around the guard or in front of the guard the way he was able to hit Adesanya, it's going to be so easy now for him because remember when he caught Izzy with the left hook? Izzy went up to put up the guard. He went up to guard up high and the left hook went right in front of it. He landed it perfectly fitting in the punch. And it's true that Izzy doesn't do that anymore in MMA, but here's the thing about Adesanya. He's changed more than you think. The Izzy that fought Kelvin Gastelum would be a very hard challenge for Pereira, but champion Adesanya who will back up away from opponents, who will allow opponents to lead easier than ever before. That could be his demise against Pereira because if Pereira is able to back him up against the cage, where now Adesanya cannot lean on the ropes, how is he getting away from the left hook this time? He might have to shoot him for takedowns. The leg kicks are going to come a lot easier as well because remember in the second fight he was landing a lot of those. Adesanya was having the most success against Pereira when he was aggressive. How is he going to fight Pereira backing away and countering? It's way too dangerous. Pereira's way too sharp on the offensive. So here's the thing. I do see Adesanya beating Pereira, 
But with everything about Alex Pereira, the skill that he has in the stand-up is like one of the only guys that can be somewhat comparable to Adesanya, at least, right? He's one of the only guys that knows how to fight Adesanya on the feet. Number two, the length is not going to be too much of a problem. And even that, Adesanya's length isn't too much of a problem for other fighters. Like it is, for an example, John Jones, right? John Jones uses his reach better than anybody else. Whereas shorter fighters are able to get inside on Adesanya. So the length of Pereira isn't necessarily going to be good defensively for himself. It's going to be good offensively. But here's one thing you have to see about those kickboxing fights. For both Izzy and Pereira, they were landing a lot of shots on each other. In the first fight, there wasn't too much of it. It was more of a technical back and forth. But in the second fight, the damage is the important thing to look at. Because Pereira was able to land a left hook constantly throughout that fight it wasn't just one time and he also was able to rock Adesanya in that fight he definitely has the more power between the two Pereira hit him with a big left hook before Adesanya was really able to get anything off on him those big punches that Adesanya was hitting Pereira with before all of that Poetan was landing that left hook and he was landing some of his big kicks as well so perhaps even Alex Pereira's more modern style that he developed after that Adesanya fight perhaps that's even better against Adesanya in MMA, given the fact he's going to pepper Adesanya from a distance, land jabs, land low kicks, teeps to the knee, teeps to the body, just to get Adesanya to expose himself a little bit, get out of his shell. And that's when he's going to look for that big check left hook. And remember, Pereira can do that. He can pick Adesanya from a distance as well because he's the same length and same height. So with MMA gloves, they are not going to be able to withstand those kind of shots from each other. I don't think so, at least. Pereira seems to have an insane chin. I believe he might have a better chin than Izzy as well as being more powerful. So if they exchange with each other in MMA, I don't think Izzy's going to be able to come out on top of that unless he doesn't get hit. And that's ultimately the biggest thing about this. His defense has to be sort of his offense as well in this fight. He cannot just be defensive and just counter only. He's going to get his legs kicked, his body kicked. He's going to jab from a distance. The left hook is going to catch him if he gets back to the fence. That's why this fight is intriguing. It's not Adesanya that's Pereira's biggest hurdle. It's most other guys. It's Derek Brunson. It's Robert Whitaker. It's Vittori. These guys are the hurdles for Alex Pereira. Adesanya is that competitive fight. These other guys are really dangerous against him. But great question, man. And then we're going to Hydra OG. Who would win in a street fight between Connor and Tyson Fury? This would be a tough one, but I'd go with Connor maybe. Maybe if it doesn't get clipped early. Because I was able to see Darren Till. I mean, Darren Till's a big guy, but I was able to see Darren Till take Tyson Fury down very easily without really trying much. Not only that, Connor's really good with his kicks. Tyson Fury's not going to know how to react to them. The takedown is not going to be able to react to that. He doesn't even have to take Tyson Fury down. Just break his posture a little bit, try to get his back, something like that. Connor's actually a decent grappler. But Fury, of course, has a giant chest and winning this as well if he lands early. It's going to be very difficult for Connor to get away from those punches. Tough, hypothetical fight to think about, but I guess I will lean to Connor. And then if you could pick one fighter from Bellator to join the UFC, who would it be? AJ McKee. 100%. That guy is amazing. If you could have any fighter past or present to do a podcast with you, who would you choose? Probably Habib. I believe we have a good discussion about the sport and life in general. Back in Dagestan, he actually lived very similarly to how my family used to live. And I think we can have a very interesting perspective on how different that lifestyle actually is. I think GSP would also be pretty cool. And then we go right to the members. First question, Naresh Mokonte. How many pay-per-view buys do you think these fights can sell? Oh, this is interesting. Event 1, Volkanovski versus Holloway 3 for the featherweight belt. Coleman event is Tony Ferguson versus Bobby Green. 400,000 buys. The reason why I say that is Volkanovski versus Holloway probably doesn't even draw 300,000. Maybe something close to that. With Tony on the card, it might jump it up a little bit more. And the fact that the trilogy with Holloway and Volkanovski is its own thing, it might draw up enough to get to 400,000. Event number two, John Jones versus Miocic for the interim heavyweight title. 
Co-main event is Oliver versus Gaethje for the lightweight belt. Third title fight, Rose versus Carla 2 for the strawweight belt. Now, this is going to depend how much John Jones versus Dominic Reyes drew. That's UFC 247. Oh, we don't know. Okay, so John Jones versus Anthony Smith was 650,000. That is purely off of John Jones. The most he ever drew was with Daniel Cormier, 860,000 for the second fight. Now, Stipe can get around 350,000. Charles Oliveira can get around 300,000 when he fought Michael Chandler. I don't think he was necessarily the draw of the card, but after he beat Dustin Poirier, there's definitely going to be more people to watch his fights. Rose is always somewhat of a name, but she doesn't draw on pay-per-view. I think this card would draw 900,000. It might be a little bit generous, but I'll say 900,000. And then event number three. Connor versus Oliveira for the lightweight belt. Coleman event is Gon versus Miocic, and then Chandler versus Tony Ferguson. Oh, that sounds like 1.5 at least. I don't see it going under 1.5. I'll probably go up to 1.6 or 1.7 million. You have Miocic on there. You have Tony Ferguson on there. People know Chandler. People know Oliveira. Connor is there. I mean, that's a massive card. I like those kind of questions. And then we're going to Nick Beatty. Did you watch Chad Mendes' bare knuckle fighting championship debut? He looked like a killer. He didn't even look natural though. Of course he didn't. Also, when are you going to put up more extra podcasts, homie? The extra podcasting, I'm going to start going live for Patreon and for the members of the channel. Every so often. I don't know if I'm going to have a schedule on it. Just like whenever I feel like going live, I might just do it. You know, maybe give a notice an hour before. But as for Giga Chad Mendes... The guy can't be natural. I mean, could he? Could Chad look natural like that? He was enormous in there. And who put him up against Fames or whatever his name is? Joshua Alvarez. Who signed this guy up for this? They put a legit fighter, not just a fighter, one of the most capable UFC featherweights we have ever seen, go up against a singer. I mean, if it would have went any other way, I would have been surprised. But Chad Mendez is a monster. He's looking like he's living his best life, man. Then we're going to Justin Mack. Do your predictions change slightly when you see training footage of them or when you notice a significant mindset change just days before the fight? Yes, the mindset of the fighters is something that's hard to really predict. And that's an important thing about a fight. I mean, if the guy's mindset is not there, if he's not mentally checked for the fight, I mean, most people just don't know. Fans don't know that going into it unless it's obvious. But like 90% of the time, it's hard to really gauge if they're mentally ready for the fight or they're faking it. If I do see a change and it's noticeable, my prediction about the fight definitely does change. And as for the training footage, not too much. I mean, if they look good, they look good. But if they look like they're injured or something, then it's definitely going to change my prediction of it. Then we'll go to Creamy Zeus. Hey Weasel, I've been thinking about amazing fighters that become champion, get bored, and don't perform as good as they used to, such as Izzy. Like, Izzy before championship status was knocking guys out and putting on a show. But as of late, like after the Costa fight, he has been mediocre in most eyes. What solution, methods, or goals you have to set to get your head back in the game? This happens to so many guys, man. When they become champions, their perspective changes because now they're only looking to defend what they have instead of chasing and getting something from their opponent. Adesanya has nothing to gain from any opponent anymore. He just has to defend what he has. I guess he tried against Jan Blachowicz, but Jan was so tricky in the fight that Adesanya really couldn't get going. And the Polo Costa fight was a tailor-made fight for him. Costa is a guy that was going to make Adesanya look really good. But when you look at other fighters who don't have that kind of style to make Adesanya look good, he kind of just coasts and does enough to win. We saw this with Jose Aldo back in the day. We saw it with John Jones. We saw it with Anderson Silva sometimes. And we saw it with GSP. They were a different fighter going up the ranks or out of the UFC or whatever it is. But once they became champion, some of their performances were just head-scratching. Just you don't really understand it. And people have to remember, it's not a physical thing. It's not something about their skills. It's all mental. They have changed what's important to them. And I know Adesanya says that you know, he gets bored in a fight. 
but it's all tied in together. When he was a contender, he had something to chase. He has something to look forward to. So he was blasting through opponents and making them look like they don't belong in there with him. Right? Look what he did to Derek Brunson. Look at his fight with Kelvin Gaslam. Now that he's a champion, what's the chase? What is he trying to grab? What is he trying to take from someone? There seems to be an issue with fighters putting goals on things that are not tangible. The tangible things are what their goals are. Champion belts, rankings, money. These are all things that are tangible that you can see it. But most fighters have a hard time of creating goals around intangible things like trying to be the greatest of all time, being a fan favorite, finding a way to get more pay-per-view buys and stuff like that. These are all things that they have to create themselves in order to obtain that goal. The tangible things like the belts and the ranks and the money, there's a set path in order to get those. So they don't have to be creative and think about the path they have to create in order to get them. So not Adesanya has come up with another goal where he wants to lap the division. But in order to lap the division, he doesn't need to be exciting. He doesn't need to revert back to how he used to be. He just has to do enough to win because that's ultimately what it is. He wants to win again against everybody in the division. His goals will have to change. And that's just specific to a fighter. That's like a subjective thing. What do you want for yourself? If he's going to be exciting again, He's going to have to look forward to just put on performances for the fans. Take a Vanderlei Silva approach to the game. You want to put on a show every single time and be a fan favorite. I don't think Adesanya is looking to do that, though, because Adesanya has greatness to his side. Vanderlei did as well, but Adesanya is a long-reigning champion, and if he just all of a sudden tries to be exciting, it can definitely hurt him. So I think he hit a roadblock mentally after becoming a champion. Interesting question, though. And then we go to Jax206. Hey Weasel Ultra here. Two questions. Who are some of your favorite MMA content channels? Okay, so I like Mixed Molly Whoppery. He makes fantastic videos. I like Luke Thomas. I think Submission Radio does a really good job on their interviews. And Clyde, whenever he gets his MMA videos out there, he does a really good job. Those are pretty much the only MMA channels I watch. Then your next question, why does a double and triple jab always get countered? How do I make it work? I see fighters land a beautiful double jab combo, but when I try it in sparring, I get a right hand between the eyes. I would have to see it. It's kind of hard to picture the way you're throwing it because there could be many mistakes you're probably making. And I don't know which one of those mistakes you're making. So, because there's a few things. I don't know what stance you're in. I don't know what stance the guy you're going up against is in. I don't know if you're pumping it first. I don't know if you're lowering it. I don't know if you're dropping them. I, I don't know if your shoulder's too low. I don't know if you're stepping in with them. There's so many different mechanics here that I need to know about. So ask for the next podcast, or you can just DM me the details of it, and I can get back to you. I do it with Diego Stork. Number one, you said in your 271 prediction video that if Robert Whitaker were to lose the rematch, he would have been done with title shots. But after seeing how competitive the fight was, arguably, Rob should have won. Do you think we have a Volkanovski versus Max situation where the third fight is totally justified, even though one guy is down two? Yes, 100%. I never thought I would have said that, but yeah, I go back on it. I think you can get a third fight very soon with Adesanya. And number two, let's say you're tasked with putting together a pay-per-view card that has to surpass McGregor versus Habib and buys. If you can get any active UFC fighter on the card, what would your five-fight main card look like? There is no card without Habib and Connor to get 2.4 million buys. There is none. We can get Jorge Jones, Dustin, Nate, and I guess Stipe on the card, and it will not draw that much. So there is no card that can do it. Because remember... When you're going into like the million pay-per-view buys, which is such a rare number to hit, the majority of the fans watching the fights are casual fans. And when I say casual fans, I'm talking about guys that they don't know anybody besides the main event. So I can bring on Stipe. I can bring on all of these fighters. The casual fans aren't going to really look too deep. The main event is going to draw the main number of pay-per-view buys. Perhaps you can have Jones and Stipe and Jorge Nate, etc. on the card. It would draw over a million, 100%. But it, I don't think it will draw two. No way. Even as a collective, 
None of those guys are famous enough to draw over 2 million buys. And with that, we're going to go right to the public questions. There's been some great questions so far. We're going to go right to basketball for life. Hamza said he would love to be a triple champ. Is that even realistic, though? Could he beat top guys in the 205 division? I'm not going to go that far. He hasn't even won one belt yet. And not only that, he's never even fought a top five fighter yet. For him to beat three champions in different divisions that span 35 pounds, I will not say it's not possible, but realistic? I'm going to say no to that. I can see him beating Izzy. I can see him having a competitive fight, possibly edging it against Usman. But I don't see him being like Glover. There would a Lord Slug. If there was a BMF title for each division, encompassing everything from the resume, accolades, record, years of service, fighters, current, or retired. Who is the BMF of each division? Feel free to include multi-division BMFs as well. Thinking of Bisping and uh, Dos Anjos here. The heavyweight division, BMF. I'm going to say that's Junior Osantos. Light heavyweight is Shogun Hua. Middleweight is Michael Bisbing, for sure. He's like the BMF. Welterweight's kind of hard, so multi-division is RDA. If you go from lightweight to welterweight, in the entire rankings, he would be like number two behind Bisbing. For just welterweight, Robbie Lawler. Lightweight, RDA, but he's multi-division, so I might say Donald Cerrone. You could also put Tony Ferguson in there. For the featherweight division, it's Max Holloway. Perhaps Edson Barboza's there as well. For bantamweight, it's Uriah Faber. And for flyweight, and for flyweight, maybe Brendan Moreno, women's bantamweight, I guess Nunez, maybe? Women's flyweight, Shevchenko, women's strawweight, Angela Hill. But here's the thing, of all women divisions, it's Jessica Andrade. She's that multi-division BMF. She's like the most BMF out of all the female fighters. Then with a Josh Wigan, what chance do you give Shemaev against Izzy after seeing Rob take down Izzy multiple times? And every time Izzy got up, he was giving up his back. That's what I'm talking about, man. That's dangerous. You don't do that to Hamza. And he does it constantly. Izzy always does this. So by percentage, I would give Hamza. Right now, it's tough. Because there's so many things I still don't know about the guy. I know I say that all the time, but it's the truth. We still haven't seen too much from him. I might favor him to win. I'll give him like a 52% chance. Then with a Philip Hart, with Bryce Mitchell defeating Edson, how do you think he does against the upper tier of that division? Thank you for your work also. No problem, man. And Bryce Mitchell is something else. So when you say upper tier, for an example, like, I don't see him being Volkanovski. I do not see him being Holloway. Ortega would be interesting. I don't think it will go to the ground, so if it does, I mean, I don't think Bryce Mitchell can handle Ortega on the ground. On the feet, it could be competitive because Ortega doesn't have too much defense, whereas Mitchell seems to be a little bit more well-rounded with his striking. So that would be a competitive fight, in my opinion. He could beat Yair. If he takes Yair down, I think he could beat him. The single leg might be there for the taking, given Yair's stance and the way he always throws that lead leg. So if Bryce Mitchell catches it, there's a single leg for him. I think he loses the Korean Zombie, and he might also lose the Kelvin Cater, but that's a close one. Then with the Luke Farris, what adjustments does Darren Till need to make in order to start beating top contenders? Do you see any matchups that would be good for him in order to get a win and build back the hype after knocking out Cowboy? Looking at the ranking, seems like his options are Uriah Hall, Hermanson, Costa, or maybe Strickland. How do you think Darren would do with these matchups? Best MMA content on YouTube. Keep it up, man. Thank you so much, man. So Darren Till is spending a lot of time with Hamza Shemaev, and that's definitely going to help him because the wrestling in the middleweight division is his biggest challenge. He could strike with most of these guys, but the wrestling he showed against Derek Brunson was not there. Derek Brunson and Robert Whitaker, I believe, are probably the best wrestlers in the top 15. So against the best, he didn't show great takedown defense. Hamza is going to show him some new things, especially training over there in All-Stars. You know, Alexander Gustafson, as a boxer, 
developed insanely good wrestling. So they know what they're doing up there. He needs to be able to frustrate these wrestlers, get it back on the feet, and he needs to push them back. He needs to pressure them, find the left hand, kind of similar to what he did against Cowboy. But it's also going to depend on the style he goes up against. Against Adesanya, he needs to play it technical. He needs to not be too aggressive in that one. But against the wrestlers, powerful left hands, pressure, good outside steps, and punishing the takedowns every single time is a must for Darren Till. Again, he could strike with everybody here. It's just the wrestlers that give him a problem. And the middleweight division doesn't have that many wrestlers, so Darren Till is still going to have a lot of success here. So if he fights Uriah Hall, I think he beats him for sure. If he fights Jack Hermanson, outside of the jab, I don't see Hermanson striking with Darren Till at all. Costa is an interesting one, given how fast Darren Till is to move in and out, cause Costa to miss, and then counter him. Definitely through the technical aspect of it, Darren Till should be able to dominate Paulo Costa. He just doesn't want to get winded by the body shots and get kicked to the legs. And then Sean Strickland. I think he should be Sean Strickland. I think Darren Till's takedown defense right now is good enough to stop Strickland's wrestling. So yeah, I definitely see Darren Till beating Sean Strickland. And then we go to Super Unnecessary. Okay, now we get to it. The question we've all been waiting for. Do you think we'll ever get that one fight all the fans have been waiting for? Jolie Poirier versus D. Devlin. And who do you have winning? Also, I've been a subscriber for a while now, and I'm very impressed with how far you've come with your channel. Best in the game at breakdowns, and I truly mean that. Thank you so much, man. That means so much, but this fight might be the hardest to break down. One thing that we do know is that they're both strong mentally. I mean, they stuck with their guy through thick and thin that tells me that neither of them are going to quit in the fight. But let's be honest here. When you think of Jolie, you know she's gone through a few scraps in her days. She's much more likely to get down. Whereas I don't think of D in that same way. So I would think Jolie would win, and she has two friends to help her out. And then we go to Carnage 29. How does Poirier do against top 15 at the 170 pound weight class? How does Covington do against the top 15 at 155 and 185? How does Pierre Trihan do at 145? Okay, that's a lot. So let's go through this really quickly. Dustin versus top 15. Loses the Shafkat, beats Ponzinibbio, beats Jean Leong, loses the Hamzat, beats Michael Chiesa, beats Neil Magny, loses the Sean Brady, beats Jorge Masvidal, beats Steven Thompson, beats Bilal Muhammad, loses the Vicente Luque, loses the Leon Edwards, loses the Gilbert Burns, loses the Colby, and loses the Usman. Now, Colby at 155, I don't know how drained he will be, but let's just say his skills translate and he's healthy. He beats Diego, beats Riddell, beats Gamrat, Armin Saryukian. I'm going to go with Armin. I think he beats Fizia, but that's a close fight. He beats Connor, beats Gillespie, beats Hooker, beats Tony, beats RDA again, beats Chandler, but those first two rounds are going to be dicey. Beats Dariush, loses the Islam, beats Poirier. Competitive fight, but I would say he will lose to Geishi, and then he loses to Oliveira. At 185, I think he's a little too small. He beats Edmund. I don't know about Chris Wyman. I'm going to lean to Wyman's side. He loses the Moonies, beats Tavares, loses the Imavov, beats Kelvin Gastelum, beats Uriah Hall, beats Darren Till. Competitive fight with Hermanson, but I think he edges it out. Loses to Derek Brunson, loses to Paulo Costa, beats Sean Strickland, beats Marvin Vittori on the scorecards, loses to Jared Kennanier, loses to Whitaker, and loses to Adesanya. As for Patreon in the 145-pound weight class, he beats Caceres, beats Shane Burgos, beats Mavsar, beats Yusuf, beats Barboza, beats Dan Ige, but that's competitive, beats Bryce Mitchell, beats Giga Shikadze, beats Arnold Allen, beats Josh Emmett, beats Kelvin Cater, beats Chan Song Jung, beats Yair, but very competitive fight, definitely beats Brian Ortega, loses to Max Holloway, and loses to Volkanovski. And then with a CL Hashimi, what separates elite level MMA fighters from lower level guys? Is it purely skill, punching form, kicks, jiu-jitsu, etc.? More about mentality, fight IQ, toughness, calmness, etc.? or athleticism, power, speed, etc. 
Love your content, brother. Thank you so much, man. That's an interesting question. So it's really gonna depend on the weight class. The higher the weight classes go, the more athleticism is gonna take part. When you get to like lightweight, featherweight, and bantamweight, athleticism is definitely something that's gonna be important. But the skills and mentality are gonna weigh more than the athleticism, in my opinion. So I would say the mentality is number one there. Then it's skills. Then it's athleticism in that order. Fight IQ is one of the most important things for all combat sports. The smarter you are in the cage, the less you need to be athletic and skilled. If you just make the right decisions at the right times, you could pretty much make any kind of skill work. Toughness is important, but it's not high on the criteria. Calmness is going to be important. Confidence is going to be important. A bit of delusion. And of course, the more skills you have, the higher chances are to be elite. Athleticism can back up any of this stuff. It's almost like a support category compared to the skills and mentality, which are the main things you want. I think one of the biggest examples of this was uh, Darren Till versus Tyron Woodley. There was a clear difference in experience there, as well as fight IQ. Even though Darren Till on the feet had more skills than Tyron Woodley. He still got beat on the feet though because Tyron Woodley made the right decisions at the right time, showing his fight IQ, his timing, his precision, all that stuff. He's also been there and done that in championship fights where that was Darren Till's first time. Mentality is definitely the most important thing when it comes to fighting. Then we go to Merrick Voitila. Hey, how do you think these following fights would go? Yuri versus Izzy. Well, I do know that Izzy would tear him apart technically, but I think the power that Yuri possesses might be able to make the difference between the two. Potentially, that is. The more I think about it, the more I could see Izzy winning the fight because he's just so much more fundamental. He'll probably be able to see everything Yuri throws at him. So, actually, I'm going to lean that direction. I'm going to think that Izzy beats Yuri Prohaska throughout five rounds and wins on a decision. Zabit versus Holloway. I think Zabit wins like the early rounds for sure and then starts to gas out. Pretty much how it's going to go down. Zabit is going to kick his legs constantly, jab him in the face, exchange combinations with Holloway, actually even out, I won't say outpace him, but like out volume him in the first couple rounds and not allow Holloway to get going early in the fight. But then Zabit is going to start gassing out and Holloway is going to put the combinations on him. I don't think he finishes Zabit, but he ultimately wins on the decision, winning the last three rounds. Third round might be a little bit close, so it should be a competitive fight. Diaz versus McGregor 3. So these two guys are not in their prime anymore. I believe when they fought each other the first and second time, they were both in their prime. Different weight class, so it does make a little bit of a change. You know, Connor, I think, in the featherweight division was really in his prime optimal weight. He was just so much more effective against those guys down there than he was in the lightweight division and even the welterweight division. But skills-wise... Connor was at his peak when he fought Diaz, and also vice versa. Diaz was at his best around the time he fought McGregor. The best Nate Diaz we've ever seen was when he fought Michael Johnson, and that was around the same time he fought McGregor as well. So how does this one go down, where Diaz has slowed down a lot, he's really using his toughness as a defense these days, more than ever before. He's always done that, but he's really taking shots to the chin in order to try to get back at the opponent whether that's on purpose or not. McGregor still looks clean. His strikes are still perfect for him, but perhaps his defense and his timing is not the same as he used to be. So ultimately, if he doesn't have the timing, if he cannot catch Diaz early in the rounds where he is at his strongest, I think Diaz will still be able to drown him in the fight. So I think Diaz would win this one. Still getting hurt a little bit in the early rounds, but ultimately, I see McGregor's punches missing more this time than ever before, creating a lot more openings for Diaz to clinch up with him, land his own one-twos, as Diaz's timing and precision hasn't really gone anywhere. And then who do you think has the best chance to become a new champion in each weight class? The new champion. Okay, for the heavyweight division, it's still Surreal Gone. Light heavyweight division is Magomed Ankulayev. Middleweight division is Robert Whitaker. Welterweight division is Colby Covington. The lightweight division is Islam Makhachev. 
For featherweight, it's Max Holloway. Bantamweight, it's Piotr Jan. For flyweight, it's Eskar Eskarov. Women's bantamweight, it's Amanda Nunes. Women's flyweight, whenever she fights, I think it's Tatiana Suarez. And women's strawweight is Carla Esparza. I think with a grand point twenty-five, can Gerald Mearshart overcome that devastating loss to Hamza in the eyes of the casual fans? Since his loss to Hamza, he's actually had three straight submission finishes against some good fighters. I feel like if he continues this trajectory, the UFC would have no choice but to rank him. It's interesting, right? I think this is going over a lot of people's heads. Gerald Mearshart is actually doing very well. That loss to Hamza did him wonders. I mean, he really adapted fix some mistakes, and is doing better in his UFC career than he's ever done before. I mean, this guy submitted Mahmoud Muradov in the second round. That is a legit fighter he finished. And if he gets like one more win, man, he might be in the top 15 in that middleweight division. He is really putting things together, and it's great to see someone like Gerald Mearshaw. I mean, he's a veteran, so of course he's going to make adjustments after losing. He's lost plenty of times to know how to make adjustments, but the Hamzat loss made him a better fighter. And it's kind of the same thing that happens with uh, Max Holloway's victims. When Max Holloway beats somebody, they just get better afterward. Besides, I would say Jose Aldo, but then again, later down the road, Jose Aldo became really good at bantamweight. It just shows you the mentality of Gerald Mearshart. He never takes his losses as a negative. He always learns from them, and that's great to see, man. He's going to be fighting Christoph Jocko, which is another real opponent on April 30th. So I'm really curious to see how that fight goes down because if he beats Jocko, I believe he should take that top 15 spot away from Edmund Shabazian. And then the last question, we're going to go to Annan. Howdy, Weasel. I think a lot of people, especially non-fans, tend to forget that fighters are human beings who work jobs, have to pay bills, have hobbies, etc. So my question is, do you recall a moment or moments that humanize the fighter for you, maybe even changing your perspective on the fighter as a whole? For me, when I started training at my gym, I remember one of the instructor's fighters wanted to go home early from sparring practice one time because the new Final Fantasy game had just released. No way. Why Final Fantasy? Never really was a big fan of those games. The situation was pretty funny to think about, but for whatever reason, that moment always stuck with me, and I 100% get it, man. A lot of people, I would actually say most, I did not mean to pull a burnish off. Most people, I believe, look at fighters or you know famous people or someone they admire, and they don't view them as a human being in a sense, right? If you were to ask them, is that a human being? They're going to say, of course, but they don't treat them as such. This is for all celebrities, man. Everybody treats celebrities as otherworldly, like someone that needs to be worshipped. When the celebrities themselves, the fighters themselves, don't actually like this sort of thing. At least most of them don't. They want to be viewed as human. They want to be normal. You always hear them say, I'm just a normal guy who does this thing and people admire my work. Their work is phenomenal. What they do should be respected on a high level. But that's why when you see these fun moments where like, you know, the fighter or the celebrity does a certain thing that every human being does on a regular basis. It's like, oh, wait, yeah, he's just like us. He's nothing different. That's pretty cool because it becomes more relatable. The only guy that never does anything relatable is probably Tony Ferguson, but that's why we love the guy. Now, for me, I never really had that kind of thing where I looked at fighters or anybody like that as not human or I treat them as such because I've been training ever since I was a kid. So I've become used to seeing people at a high level, either training the class, I talk to them, they're in another session, but I'm able to make time to talk to them about certain things. So I used to see these people all the time. So for me, Fighters always have looked human to me. The conversations are all normal when they're talking about their kids and stuff. It's like, yeah, they're a parent like everybody else. Or you see them struggle trying to make weight. You see them get frustrated when things don't go right in the gym. Like this is all normal stuff that you see on a regular basis. And I've trained with a couple UFC fighters before. So it's most like a lot different from my perspective because most fans don't interact with these fighters that closely. You know what I'm saying? Other than, you know, getting pictures and stuff. But what I will say is there is one moment that made me admire a 
fighter more on a human level than ever before, and that was hearing Yoel Romero's story. When he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking about what happened to him and, and how his whole life unfolded since he was young, that made me think of Yoel Romero in a different light for sure, man. And I always rooted for the guy. But Final Fantasy, that's why he left? I mean, if it was something like for Elden Ring, that I would understand, but Final Fantasy? I might get some disagreements about that. But that's the end of the podcast, guys. Great questions. These were, these were some fantastic questions. Keep them coming for the next podcast, and they're going to come out more frequently. I just had a lot of stuff I had to get done outside of content. You know, I got a new place and remodeling the thing, doing a bunch of stuff in the house. I really didn't have much time to sit down and put a lot of time into a podcast. So now that I'm settling in, I should be able to get them out a lot more frequently. And now I should be able to go live on Patreon as well as for the members of the channel. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for the questions. And I'll see you guys in the next one.